0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the show from the Nevada
0: Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and
1: producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
0: This week, reporter Janelle Calderon interviews Sandra Cosgrove and Wendell Blylock, two members of the Nevada Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, on their recent report focusing on learning loss as students return to the
1: classroom. After that, we recap part of a discussion we held on Twitter Spaces about redistricting with Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendell's Tabitha Mueller, Sean Galanca, and Janelle Calderon.
0: At the end of the show, Humberto Sanchez comes on to talk to me about the federal infrastructure bill, which finally passed last week after months of debate. We'll talk about how much of the $1.2 trillion bill will come to Nevada. The COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated existing problems in Nevada on many fronts, but especially for K-12 education. Students and teachers were forced to shift to online learning, and that stressed the state's education system in a way that it never had before. Many fear that the shift left students behind, putting them at a disadvantage now that in-person schooling has returned. To learn more, reporter Janelle Calderon spoke with two members of an advisory committee studying the concept of learning loss in schools.
2: Earlier this month, the Nevada Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights published a report on the topic of learning loss during the pandemic-related shift to online education. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights has an advisory committee in every state to assist the Commission with fact-finding, investigations, and community input on issues of potential discrimination with the goal of advancing civil rights. Through a series of five meetings this spring, panelists settled on 14 findings, ranging from a lack of adequate internet connectivity for schools to the urgent and still relevant need for more mental and behavioral health professionals. The report is sent to the governor, elected officials, the Nevada Department of Education, each of Nevada's school district superintendents and school board presidents, and the Nevada System of Higher Education Board of Regents to take a look and consider ways to resolve the highlighted issues. I recently interviewed Wendell Blaylock and Sandra Cusgrove, Chair and Vice-Chair of that committee. Both said they focused on studying whether distance education had the potential to widen existing inequities between student populations, especially for students with disabilities, English language learners, rural residents, and students of color. Playlock told me it all sparked from a moment of frustration with technology. The second voice you'll hear is committee vice chair, Sandra Cusgrove.
3: We were having either a Zoom or Skype or some sort of meeting and I was experiencing some connection issues.
4: Yeah, his, his, his internet kept going in and out. And we're like oh my gosh I wonder how kids are able to go to school like this and we went oh wait a minute. You had principals saying hey students have disappeared and we don't know where they're at and so then we were thinking okay probably what's going on who should we talk to <clears throat> and so this this report's been different from other ones because we were truly trying to do like real-time stuff and I think we pulled it off, but boy, it was kind of scary there for a bit. And and every county is having major issues with mental and behavioral health and learning loss. Because I mean, I know we're seeing it at the community college this semester, because our new students graduated last spring. And there's definitely, their, they've had trauma, they're not being very resilient, they have some gaps. And, and some of it's just even brain development.
2: A few things have changed since the last meeting of the committee. Students throughout the state, including popolis Clark County, are back to full-time in-person school, though some options for distant learning remain available. The committee is now looking to publish an addendum to the report.
4: Well, I know we've gotten feedback. Um, because when we did the very last um open meeting, there were there were folks from the state board of education going wait, we've done a lot of this stuff. Here, let us send you you know, information. So we'll end up putting that on as an addendum. But I think in real time, they have been doing some stuff.
3: Yes, 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 they have. And I, I would like to point out that in addition to CCSD, it was a public-private partnership with Connecting Kids and a yeah. number of our community partners that ensured that every student had a Chromebook.
4: And a hotspot
3: and a hotspot. Yep. And I don't want to exaggerate, but I believe Nevada was the only state, according to Superintendent Ebert, that ensured that every student had an electronic device and a hotspot.
2: They hope that millions of federal aid dollars will help the state continue addressing the issues highlighted in the report. The report said, Students have experienced learning loss due to a range of reasons, but it is not clear how much or what type of learning loss. It will be important to treat mental health issues, family circumstances, and learning loss concurrently because each is a serious interrelated problem. Emergent English language learners had additional difficulties adapting to distance learning due to a lack of information being provided to their families in a native language. Nevada school districts should offer distance education as a choice for parents and students permanently. With the ongoing pandemic and now some families feeling their children do better in distance learning classes, having the choice to continue with the distance learning modality should exist permanently.
4: We've identified the problems, we have the money. And so that's why we actually put out an advisory letter, a letter of concern in, over the summer, saying a bunch of money's coming into the state. We're expecting elected leaders to listen to the community, you know, have oversight of where the money's going and address long-term problems. Because we have a lot of needs in this state and so there's gonna be lots of people who are gonna need that money.
2: So what's the top need? Blaylock and Cosgrove say there are two, insufficient broadband internet infrastructure and a dire shortage of behavioral and mental health providers and services. Recent reports have found that the ratio of school psychologists to students in Nevada is roughly one for every 2,000 students. But the National Association of School Psychologists suggests schools have one counselor for every 250 students, and one social worker for every 400.
4: The stigma will probably lessen because of the pandemic, because we all need counseling now. And everybody realizes how being isolated can make you anxious and that it's not your fault if you're feeling depressed. But lots of parents, lots of advocates, lots of allies see this as a moment where we can actually fix things like workforce development. But you know, there's a connection between the teacher shortage and the mental health professional shortage. Because if you've got a teacher that's got 40 kids in a classroom, even just having one child that's high need, whether the student is autistic, has a physical disability, is having behavioral health problems, the teacher ends up getting kind of this split personality where she's trying to give that student everything they need and 39 other students. And so she doesn't have like a psychologist or any type of support staff helping her or him. That burns teachers out. Right. Yeah. And so there is a connection.
3: And there, there are pay issues. There are, pay. there are a number of issues. Yeah, pay. Concerning education and teachers. Yeah. And if you look nationwide, teachers are now getting pushback from parents because of the curriculum. There are a lot of challenges that I think we are poised to address here in Nevada.
4: So in Washoe County, <laughs> I discovered. In Washoe County, they pay the school psychologist on the administrator's pay scale. In Clark County, it's on the teacher's pay scale. And so when you look at the amount of professional training a school psychologist has to have, they need to be on that administrative pay scale. And so that means if you're somebody doing a psychology degree, you're much more likely to go into private practice or go someplace else because the school system's not going to be that attractive.
0: keep up on learning loss and other education issues in Nevada, you can find Janelle's reporting on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where she is covering education along with reporter Jackie Valley. We'll also keep an eye on how measures such as the infrastructure bill that passed in Congress could help address some of these recommendations, including improving broadband. This piece was written and produced by Janelle Calderon and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. held a live discussion about redistricting this week on Twitter through their new Twitter Spaces feature, and I was joined by several of our reporters. The whole discussion was about 45 minutes, but I've edited it down to distill the most relevant and important information. Before we start, for those who don't know what redistricting is and why the governor called a special legislative session for it, we have lots of explainers on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, for you. But basically, redistricting is the process of using new census data every 10 years to redraw political boundaries, which can affect who represents you in elected offices. Legislators redraw boundary lines in order to account for population growth and demographic changes, as well as many other factors. The process doesn't usually happen in a special session, but the COVID-19 pandemic delayed the release of census data, not leaving enough time for state lawmakers to get to it during the normal legislative session. So with all that explained, we are going to start with assistant editor Michelle Rendell's talking about what the proposed maps are looking like.
5: We saw what Democrats are proposing and how they want to break up the state into legislative and Senate and congressional districts. And from that, we can kind of deduce some trends and see how, you know, the Democrats that are really taking the lead on the process are allocating all the voters in Nevada and in a way that can help them have an easier time in the coming elections. I mean, we've seen such competitive races. Congressional District 3, Susie Lee's district, for example, that's always yeah. just such an expensive district. So the way they are drawing it now could make it a little easier by shuffling around some folks that were in that uh, very Democratic Titus one putting a little more of them in CD4 and CD3. So that would ultimately give Susie Lee and Stephen Horsford and whoever holds those seats an easier time if they're a Democrat. And now
0: we'll hear from Riley on the Republicans' role in this whole process.
6: Because this is such a weird process, usually redistricting would have been done during the normal legislative session that runs from late January, early February to uh, the end of June. Redistricting is kind of one of like several quote unquote endgame pieces. So it's a part of negotiations for taxes or things that require two-thirds, where Republicans can use their numbers and their advantage. Because this is just a special session, there's no other items on the table versus the maps and maybe moving the filing period for judicial candidates back. There's not a lot of leverage Republicans have, so they're just sort of along for the ride and they get to file a lawsuit when it's all said and done.
0: Now we'll hear a little bit from reporter Tabitha Mueller and what she expects to see happen after the maps have been approved by the legislature.
7: I'm expecting, you know, we'll probably have a pretty quick session. You never know truly what's going to happen, but then you might see a bunch of different lawsuits. There's a lot going on in terms of prison gerrymandering and, you know, the state not really keeping track of prisoners' addresses uh, as they should have. You also have concerns from the AAPI community about maps that don't actually reflect some of the growth that's happened within that community. Obviously, I think Republicans are looking at some of these new districts and seeing a lot of growth in terms of Democrats. So so I think those are those are all things that you could see lawsuits cropping up and potentially more.
0: Now we'll hear from reporter Janelle Calderon, who talks about minority communities' concerns about the proposed new districts. Tabs also joins in here, too.
2: I was able to speak with uh, Maria Nieto of Mi Familia Bota and Guillermo Barahona of Chispa. and. Silvia Lasso, she's a professor at UNLV. Their main concern, you know, with this redistricting, that there could be certain voices that are not fully heard or there is no representation in Latino communities. And the concern mainly of putting the Latino community against Black folks or Black neighborhoods because they already don't have as much representation. And I think we saw during the pandemic, those neighborhoods were very hit by the pandemic. There's less resources, less funding. So it was kind of like trying to elevate everyone's voices. And that's what we worked with because we wanted to hear everybody
7: out. Yeah, so I think when you know when we're talking about redistricting, I think it's really important to note that redistricting isn't just random lines being thrown onto a piece of paper, right? This really affects representation, political power, equity. And, and specifically too, it can really reflect and shape like what types of representatives that you're seeing. So if you have a, somebody that goes along and you can theoretically draw the maps in a way, you create districts that only one type of group is being represented theoretically. So if you have, say, minority communities and white communities, you could draw it in such a way that white communities are overrepresented in, say, the state or legislature, whether that's on the Assembly or the Senate side. Since 2011, uh, the Walker River Paiute Tribe, their community has been divided. The tribal land has been divided between two Assembly districts and two Senate districts. And so actually during one of the community redistricting meetings that were held in October, tribal members said, hey, we would really like to not be split between two districts and would really like to not have to go to two diff, you know, to have our community not be represented by one person who we can go and advocate to. That's just one example of a community that's had their voices sort of split and separated instead of being one group that they can go together. I think it's also important to know that when we're talking about different communities, whether that's AAPI or Latino community these aren't monolithic groups, right? Just because you may share a shared identity does not necessarily mean that you're going to vote in exactly the same way. So it can be really tricky when lawmakers are approaching this situation because you have to take into account what specifically identifiable on something like the census, right? Your your racial and ethnic makeup, like if you're from the Cuban community, you might be maybe a little more conservative than if you're from Mexico or something, and that lawmakers need to sort of keep that in mind, too, as they're approaching this process.
0: Next, we'll hear from assistant editor Riley Snyder on if the Democrats who control the state Senate, Assembly, and governor's office are redrawing districts that are unfairly favorable to them.
6: I'll read some stuff that I found very interesting from the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. It's a sort of like web online tool that looks at different districts and sort of analyze, you know, both party registration breakdown, racial breakdown all the ways that districts are sort of drawn in a way to support one political party or group versus what it considers the ideal, which is more of like a swingy 50, 50. So this group has a like competitive zone. That sounds like fun, 46 and a half to 53 and a half percent Democrat and all four of the congressional districts in Nevada, according to this Princeton gerrymandering project are just outside of that zone. So what to read into that is just that. In a wave election, probably all of them could be in play, but none of them are super safe, especially the three uh, proposed districts in Clark County that are proposed, and and again, might be changed during the the legislative session, but of the proposed ones, none of them are in that kind of competitive zone. So that means that those representatives like still have to run, they're not gonna automatically win because of an overwhelming voter registration advantage, but they all have kind of similar comfort levels. And I think the one thing to take away from that is that You know, if if one of them goes down, they're all going down and Democrats are losing the House because a eight or nine or 10 point swing against Democrats in these House races is pretty indicative that nationwide, Republicans are doing a lot better in that particular election.
0: Sean also weighs in on this topic. From what we're seeing in, in Assembly and Senate districts with these new maps, Democrats are really hoping to bolster advantages in places where they're vulnerable, in places where, you know, they've had slim leads in voter registration. Maybe they had a slim lead in, during the, the 2020 election. And on the flip side of that, there are some points where Republicans are vulnerable. They have weaknesses in terms of voter registration advantage or, or just what we've seen in the past election results where, you know, with the new, the new lines, there's a lot more Democrats packed into those districts. And, and so what Democrats are hoping for to flip those districts and, and gain some more Senate and Assembly seats. Riley also touched on possible legal challenges to the maps.
6: Any legal challenges will have to come after they're kind of signed. You can't like sue over a proposed bill, if that makes sense. The judicial system and judges typically try not to do that. They'll like make rulings on laws or districts that have been approved. So, you know, I'd expect a lawsuit to get filed pretty quickly once the maps are approved again, like this all requires a big caveat and the big star next to it that like there could be changes made, but just from what I've heard from lawmakers and from, you know, individuals involved in the process, like they're not necessarily happy with these maps so you can kind of expect there'll be some litigation involved it might be different it might be just a up or down or the court might instruct the legislature to come back and rework certain districts that have standard deviations in either population or racial breakdown or party breakdown so they can get like very technical i think this map is drawn in a way to get at that but again it's kind of you know it's something that will be up to the courts once it gets to that stage but that won't happen until after The legislature meets, votes these out, and they're signed by uh, the governor.
0: That was Michelle Rendells, her husband Riley Snyder, Tabitha Mueller, Sean Galanca, and Janelle Calderon. To keep up on everything redistricting in Nevada, make sure to check out thenevadaindependent.com. Well, I'm here with our man in D.C. Humberto Sanchez to talk about what is going on in D.C. And it's actually apparently pretty quiet there on this Veterans Day while we're recording this. But I always start with the weather, so I will continue to start with the weather. How is the weather on November 11th, 2021?
8: It's, it's beautiful. It's like it's 67 degrees. It's it's so sunny. It's eerie. Yeah,
0: it's, it's pretty nice here too in Reno. Actually, I was saying I was complaining about the snow last time we talked, but this time it's been rainy. It's been a little overcast, but today it's about 65 and no clouds. So yeah, pretty normal. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so, also, it's Veterans Day when we're recording this. You'll be hearing this a couple of days after Veterans Day, like maybe like a week or so. And you said that it's pretty quiet in the Capitol. That's interesting to me.
8: Oh yeah, it's a it's a federal holiday, so offices are pretty much closed, and uh, you know, it's just me and the Capitol Police, <laughs> essentially in the Capitol <laughs> right you guys now. Are hanging out. Yes. So the big the big thing is Infrastructure Bill. By
0: the time audiences are hearing this, Joe Biden will have signed it. So tell me a little bit about this. Tell me, you
8: know, it's taken us. God, I feel like we've been hearing about this for over a year. So let's start with why it took so long. If you, go, if you think about it, it, you know, these things always take long. The sausage making is ugly and it's lengthy. President Biden put out a plan for an infrastructure bill in January of this year. And then a group of senators decided maybe there's a, a, a way to do a bipartisan bill. And Because initially, the thought was maybe do either a big bill or maybe two bills, but with it under the budget reconciliation process, which allows the party in power in the Senate, which in this case is Democrats, to pass bills without the help of the minority party, essentially. So they they uh, avoid a filibuster is the upshot of that. But there there is a thought that infrastructure is a bipartisan issue and that there should be a, a bipartisan path forward. So a group of senators, who ultimately included Senator Jackie Rosen, for that matter... Came together and it ended up being twenty-two senators who worked on this for months. And they got this bill that went through a couple of iterations. They got this bill together, essentially put together. Put provides at one point two trillion over 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 ten years for infrastructure that includes roads and bridges and and what people typically think of infrastructure. The bill had about one hundred and ten billion dollars for roads and bridges, thirty-nine point two billion for transit, twenty-five billion for airports around the country and. And $65 billion for broadband, something new that they put in there, which is now considered infrastructure since the internet is such a, an integral part of everybody's life. And so in August, the, the Senate managed to pass this bill after lengthy negotiations and with the help of Senator Rosen, who, who helped, helped draft that broadband provision. That's been a key issue for her since she's got to the Senate and probably even before that when she was in the House. So she helped write that and, and, and they passed it with 19 Republicans, including Senator Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, going along with the bill, which was a big deal. You don't see that in, in recent history just because it, things are very polarized right now. And so the bill passed. It came to the House. And then it kind of was in limbo for a while because it got involved with the rest of the Democratic agenda, which uh, is the the soft infrastructure, the the childcare, the paid leave, the free community college, the pre-K. All all this other stuff that the Democrats wanted to pass. And once the infrastructure bill became a bipartisan bill, the plan was to pass a separate bill with the rest of the agenda. So you had a two-step process, essentially. And it got tangled with negotiations on the reconciliation bill, or what's called the Build Back Better Act. So there was a lot of negotiation on what should go into that Build Back Better Act. Of course, several hurdles remain. But they passed a half of their agenda, so that's a big deal. And and that means that a lot of money is going to come to Nevada. We're looking at at least $4 billion over five years, and they're going to get a big plus up for highways. They're going to get $2.5 billion for highway repair and, and, and construction, $225 million for bridges replacement and repair over five years. And I talked to uh, some folks at the Nevada Department of Transportation, and they were very pleased with that because... The long term funding allows them to do more planning and to have that funding source over a longer period of time allows them to do longer term projects. And so it was a big it was a big deal. And uh, the White House also had a, a lot of interesting facts about the state and how the bill would affect the state. And apparently Nevada has 28 bridges and more than a thousand miles of highway that are considered in poor condition and that that poor condition is added to the commute of folks by about eight percent since 2011. <laughs> so I mean, this is really bread and butter politics, bread and butter stuff, you know, kitchen table issues. And I think you're gonna see a lot of folks campaigning on this. It's gonna it's gonna be a big deal.
0: yeah, and and and, and I'm also curious, you know, when we're looking at how that money is split up in the state, it looks like most of that money is going towards
8: roads. But where are some of those other big chunks going? So there there's a, another chunk going to transit. Nevada will be getting about four hundred and fifty nine million over five years for for transit. The, the White House said that, that that's important because Nevadans use public transportation spend hundred and thirty-four percent more time commuting than other folks. And so that will help lessen their commute times. Also, the fleet of transit vehicles in Nevada are, are 5% of that fleet is, is already past their uh, useful life. So they'll be able to replace those. And
0: one thing too that I saw on here that was interesting, I don't think about it when I think of infrastructure, but the second I saw it, I was like, of course, that's infrastructure is drinking water and, and, and you know how water works. Our reporter, Daniel Rothbard would kill me if I said that, <laughs> if you he heard me say that. But, uh, you know, drinking water is a huge part of infrastructure. How much money is
8: going towards that? And what is that going to do for us? So they're going to, Nevada is going to get about $403 million over five years for water infrastructure. And essentially that'll go towards funding what's known as the the clean water and drinking water self-revolving loan funds. And those are basically banks that the state run that provide low interest loans to, to local lo, local governments and water systems in the state. And those loan repayments go back into the fund and are reloaned again so it's that's how it's the revolving aspect of that that program goes but this will capitalize those funding chunks of money and again more more water and wastewater Infrastructure will be, will be built as a result because that's very expensive stuff. And then,
0: of course, you mentioned broadband is a big big deal. Now that that's considered, you know, infrastructure, it's a, it, almost a public good, right? It, it's something that everyone is using all the time. So, what are we looking at for broadband
8: in the infrastructure bill for Nevada? So, essentially, they're getting Nevada is going to get at least 100 million for for broadband connectivity in the state, but there's also some money that will be distributed out or under a formula for 42.5 billion will be distributed under a uh, formula to states all around the nation. There's some conditions on those. And one of them being that you have to have a plan for your unserved regions before you can tackle the underserved areas. So they're, they're really trying to get it out to where nobody has it. Like, let's help the the folks who need who need it the most, essentially. And so, yeah, I think as a result of that, you'll see the rural areas getting getting more help and more attention on this front, which is obviously is lacked in the state because uh, according to the White House, 14% of Nevada households do not have an internet subscription, and 4% of Nevadans live in areas where there's no broadband infrastructure at all. So this is a, an issue that's been sorely lacking in Nevada, and we'll, we'll get some attention as a result of this bill. And then there's just a small note on EV charging. That's right. The, so the, there's a chunk of money, $7.5 will we'll be going to, to essentially develop the electric vehicle charging network around the nation. And th- Nevada will get about $38 million for that over five years to develop that in the state.
0: And the last thing that I think we should talk about is uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto had a provision in part of the bill that that
8: talks about wildfires. I think that's a really big deal, especially for people up here in northern Nevada. That's right. So she got provisions that totaled about $3.4 billion for wildfire prevention across the nation. And that includes an additional $10 million for wildfire detection equipment, like what's used in Tahoe, what's known as alert wildfires. I believe a, ne- a network of cameras that, uh, that so people can see fires early and, and put them out earlier. Apparently, that's been a very successful program. And, and I absolutely know wildfires have been hugely uh, damaging to to the region. So again, $3.4 is pretty good for, for the nation, though. So it's it's divided up among all the states. And uh, there's also some drought mitigation as well, which Susie Lee was also involved in uh, as well. So uh, we're going to see some, some some serious attention to, to areas like wildfire and drought mitigation.
0: All right, Humberto, well, thank you so much for kind of breaking that all down. And maybe we can start finally talking about
8: some other stuff other than uh, infrastructure bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. The, 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 we're going to hear a lot more about the infrastructure bill as Democrats uh, hit the campaign trail by telling voters what they've done so far.
0: That's that's true, but at least we'll have some uh, some interesting campaigns to look forward to, I guess. <laughs> All right, we'll have a enjoy your uh, nice sixty seven degree day in DC, and I'll enjoy my nice sixty five degree day here in Reno. Thanks for having me, man.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Sandra Cosgrove, Wendell Blylock, Janelle Calderone, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, Tabitha Mueller, Sean Galanca, and Humberto
1: Sanchez for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey Lovato, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support
0: the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, best frozen bagel pizza bites, pictures of chariots literally on fire, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at the or jacob at the nvindy.com.
1: Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from our own Joey Lovato.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm
1: your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.